Okay, I think we are live. Welcome to episode five of The Secret Podcast. This week's episode is about being a better traveler and learning to embrace culture that you find yourself in in a much better way to get more comfortable with your environment and to generally have a better experience. I think it's something that I personally have always felt I could be better at. And when it comes to traveling, to me, it seems very much like it's a skill that something you can hone and get better at. And even if you're maybe not the most outward person, you can still learn to be a really good traveler. And in the long run, that can be really transformative for your travel experience. For this week's episode, our guest is Chris Wilthouse. Chris is a unique character who I've been very lucky to make two travel films alongside now. One was in Nepal in 2016, I believe. And the other one was our most recent travel film, which was in Iceland. After a career in the Dutch Armed Forces, and then I believe you were a member of the UN Peacekeeping Force. I don't know if that's the right term. Um, you and your wife travelled the length of the Americas together, your wife Anna, and then you set about maybe starting your own company called Explore 360. But more importantly, I think to today's topic than just the things you've done is that you're one of the best travellers I've ever met. You're kind of so open and warm and engaging in every situation, no matter where you are, whatever's going on, you're able to kind of embrace people and that situation like no one else I've met. Kind of made a little joke in my notes here that you're like a human Dutch current, which is kind of funny because you're Dutch and yeah, it's a terrible joke. So, um, yeah, firstly, I want to welcome you to the podcast and, and start by going through your background. When you were drafted into the UN, you moved to Syria, which I think is a really interesting thing um, in terms of your, your background. In a culture as different from Europe as the Middle East, what was that experience like? Um, and yeah, kind of how is it different from your life outside of living in Syria? And how much were you able to actually embrace the culture you live in? Um, Thank you, uh, Lo. Um, yeah, I think Syria was um, actually one, basically the foundation um, for what I'm doing nowadays, uh, I would say. Um, it was also the first time I went solo. I drove on my BMW 1200. Before I went only on Ducatis and going fast, uh, I had no clue. And I drove solo to Damascus, worked there for two years for the UN on the Golan Heights, uh, and drove solo back. And as I said, on the way in, I had basically no clue what I'm doing. And I thought it's a BMW, they, didn't, they don't break down, which it didn't. And um, those two years, I would say, were pretty much... Um, it's for sure a highlight in my life. It's been amazing. Uh, it comes back often, the memories and all the friends and people that came over, they really, we try to show them the, the Middle East, Syrian, especially Syrian Jordan, the, the hospitality, the, the magical food they have there, the cultural heritage. It's so much to see. So that really is, that was like a seed planted. Um, which grew later on me to travel only more and more. Um, as I said before, I was more on racing bikes, and that started me to get into the adventure riding, um, pretty much, I would say. Mm. So when you when you lived in Syria, how much of, of being in that environment were you able to become a part of? Was it something where you could 
uh, spend a lot of time with locals because I think I remember you saying before you had a you had a flat there and you kind of lived there. Was it something that you were able to in, in, engage in a lot, or were you kind of still a little bit removed because you were military? No. Um, yes. Um, when of course working uh, for for you and your your uh, then you work and uh, you engage. With uh, you know, working relationship. Uh, beside that, we had so much time off. No, not so much time, but you were, we were very. We had a lot of opportunity to travel uh, in the whole of the Middle East. Um, having a Syrian um, a UN passport, which makes you like a semi-diplomatic, gives us gave us all the freedom to um, to go basically wherever we want. You had to sh- give a rough plan and um, speaking. Not, not speaking Arabic, um, science being in Arabic forces you to, of course, uh, map reading is one, GPSs were not so common in 2005, um, to take uh, a lot of advice, but also ask a lot around and get in contact with people. Because uh, if you want to get somewhere, you need, you need to, you need to ask if you lost kind of thing. And, um, I think the Syrians, at the time, uh, it was very much on the axis of evil, if you remember, with uh, George W. Bush. And um, it was so much the opposite. Like, of course, you have politics. I always say, I don't do politics on my tour, and I try not to. Of course, we can discuss politics. But um, the people, I would say, of Syria are, and, and, and Jordan as well, Lebanon and Egypt as well, are so open, they're so hospitable, so friendly. Um, that really is something I think we lost in Western Europe, and that really opened my eyes and said, like, oh, they, um, yeah, they they make you feel welcome, and um, uh, when you open up, you get a lot back. So uh, that's kind of what happened in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm lo- longing to come back to go back one day actually, but um, that will not be soon. Unfortunately. Yeah, sadly. So I think for me, the basis of this topic starts with that trip we did in 2016, where we travelled to a really remote, formerly restrictive part of Nepal called the Upper Mustang. It's an amazing place, kind of high altitude desert. I've never kind of been anywhere else that was anything close to that. And I think what really struck me when we did that trip was how comfortable you were with local people. You were immediately open and conversational and jovial. And when it, it kind of was highlighted most when we reached Lomontang and we shared uh, a tea house with some some hikers um, and the hiking guide who had been doing it for 20 years into that area or something. And, and there was just such a, a difference in how you had kind of brought yourself and your group of people out of their shells versus this hiking crew. They wouldn't even talk to us. We're all from Europe. We're all in the same place. We're all experiencing relatively the same thing. Maybe we move a little bit quicker than we do. But they were very closed off. They didn't talk to us. They didn't talk to local people. They stayed in the group. And at that point, you'd hurt your knee quite badly. We're like 500 kilometers from the nearest hospital. And a local doctor came out, gave you some herbal medicine, which smelled awful. Worst smelling thing in the world. And you kind of, you just were so open about it. Let me treat you in this non-westernized way and with like complete faith and openness and 
engaged with these people and you had this like amazing experience that if you hadn't been like that it wouldn't have happened you know if you'd had that kind of closed off mentality we wouldn't have been there in the same way we would have kind of sat in a little bubble we wouldn't have had that experience with doctors so for me it's kind of more a question of i've actually got my question written down here but it comes to your your own no that's the wrong question <laughs> um, is that faith and openness in cultures and not passing judgment something that you've learned or is it something that you've always had um i think i i can't i think you know, it's a characteristic in its in itself but you can for sure i have learned it more and more um if you're very introvert and shy um it might be difficult if you're an open person and like extrovert uh, this is quite a cliche, of course, but um, I think you learn it. I learned it, I should say, early in the in the military. Being in Afghanistan, um, realizing that um, not every person, not every man with a beard and a turban is the Taliban is the enemy. No, it's yeah, it's very, but it's true. Like uh, for me, that became true being there. Um, so from that background, getting into traveling. Getting into more and more situations where you need help, where you encounter people, um, you experience that um, that fear that oh, it's part of an adventure, like it's traveling, because you you you're afraid for the unknown. The unknown is um, for me a calculated risk, and the unknown is a fantastic combination, um, which is part of this jigsaw of the puzzle of adventure riding. I would say it's very this bustling feeling that you get. Is something that, that that frightens me, and I think um, it doesn't block me, like that I cannot uh, operate or that I cannot communicate anymore. And um, I think the example that you just gave with the doctor, and it was a llama actually. Um, I use a lot, uh, even with doctors, because uh, as you know, I had a I have an illness, like uh, got thrombosis in my leg. And the story behind it is that um, for me, being different is okay. Like a different culture is okay. Doing things in a different way uh, is okay because um, we often come with our Western European Western glasses and look at things and think that we're really good how we run things. And living in Sweden is uh, it's an amazing country, but there are other ways that might also be good. And this was a perfect example, I think, that you gave because um, um, going to this Lama and uh, he has this 2,000 years old knowledge. And the only thing, because I want to explain a bit because what happened, because it still it gives me the goosebumps when I think about it. Um, he put his fingers on my wrists and felt my pulse for like 30 seconds on both hands. And uh, then he said like, yeah. You have a lot of pain and fluid in your right knee, and then I thought, yeah, that's an easy one. I came limping in, and you spoke with my guide. That's that's a hard one. But then he said, your blood circulation in your right calf is not good, and that was for me like whoa, because nobody, at least the guide, didn't, not many people know that I had a thrombosis and that I was wearing compression socks and take medicine. And then I was like, whoa, this this is impressive, man. No, no, I'm on it, and. Um, so yes, um, and it worked. You you were there, like the 
my knee, I could ride back actually, but well, I thought my knee is busted and it's going to be operated or whatever. But um, two days later, uh, the fluid was gone and like um, I could ride again. So being open means for me, um, yes, um, it's the unknown people uh, you meet are unknown situations you meet is unknown, but it can also be um, very exciting. And um, the more you dive in those situations, um, the more you learn and the more you enjoy it, I would say. In the beginning, it's very scary. I, 10 years ago, I was not as far as I am now. So yes, you can learn it for sure. And that's just by doing it. Okay, that's interesting. Kind of answered yeah. my next question there. Um, because, yeah, I think especially as a tour guide, you probably have the opportunity to help a lot of other people come out of their shells and embrace these situations that are, like you say, scary. And I, I definitely feel it. I obviously don't travel anywhere near as much as you. And when I first step into those situations, especially in like a big new city, I find it uncomfortable and a little bit scary. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. I think one of the other things for me that is is really uh, a big barrier in a good way and a bad way is language so language for me i think it can make an environment feel completely different depending on whether you can or can't speak the language i mean as a person that grew up in britain uh, we don't speak other languages we speak english and everybody else speaks english so we learn how to ask where the train station is in french and we leave it there um, but i also think with that comes quite a lot of embarrassment about putting ourselves out there about learning to just embrace being a bit crappy. So how much when you travel somewhere new, obviously as a, a Dutch person living in Sweden, you speak 754 languages. Um, how, how much do you learn those local languages and phrases and how important is that as a, as a thing that you do when you go somewhere, especially somewhere new? If you do so learn bits of language, how do you go about that? Um, yes, uh, good question. I think a language is, um, is important, but of course, uh, I, I don't speak, so um, I do body language. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you speak what, maybe no. four or five languages Dutch, uh, Swedish, yeah, German, yeah, uh, German, a bit of French as well. Uh, and but I made, I made a joke about it, but. <laughs> Body language is, of course, when you don't speak uh, the language of the country, body language is extremely important. So I do believe uh, that you, that's a language you should, uh, you cannot learn it, but uh, understand a bit at least, that some signs mean different things in different cultures. Um, like you um, should not make this sign in Arabic countries, but that's a, just a, that's a size that. The question was like, how much do I do? Um, I always, because I think when you travel to another country, um, it's a form of respect because um, you're, you're visiting their country. And by learning a few basic lines, like, uh, hello, how are you? Uh, thank you, uh, for example. Uh, that's like three phrases, which normally should not be so difficult to learn. Bring, breaks the eyes immediately and... Um, immediately shows a form of respect so um when you get into the unknown you meet unknown people an unknown culture and you show this kind of 
uh, this kind of signs, um, you build up immediately a positive relationship. And that's awesome. Um, uh, I come back to living in the Middle East, like in Syria, and of course, I don't speak Arabic, just a few lines. And if you, Salam Alaikum is, of course, very polite and um, really um, form of courtesy to say so. But if you say, Kifak, Alhamdulillah, and then they, they think like, oh, he speaks Arabic, and then they go on, and uh, you think like, no, 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 and it's, as I said, it's an icebreaker. So they understand that you put effort in, in, in their way, in their culture, in their language. And um, I think that's the first best thing you can actually do when you meet no, new people in new cultures and new countries. So yes, language is important. Um, and I try to do that at least in every country I go. Um, of course, with tours, I come back quite often. So then you learn a bit more, maybe. Um, I never got that far to learn full language like Nepalese or Vietnamese. It's too difficult to spend too little time. But a few words is absolutely. Um, nowadays, online is easy to, to learn, I would say. Mm. Yeah. So you, just, mm. you kind of just look it up on Google, find some phrases. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Very good. So I think, uh, I think alongside language, one of the things for me that's so great about traveling is is food, like it's a fundamental part of every travel experience. And as humans, like you only have to jump on Netflix for two minutes to see how obsessed we are with it. There's a hundred cooking shows on at any one time, anywhere. So have you, and I'm sure the answer to this is yes, but have you ever had a moment, like the sheet testicle soup moment in Long Way Round, where you were put, something was put in front of you and you were like, whoa, like what am I meant to do here? And if you have, what was it and what did you do? Yeah, I, I when of course uh, I read it, I had to think back, and um, I have been eating some strains from snake and dog in Vietnamese countries, uh, but that was all voluntarily, like trying it. The, the worst I could remember, and I spoke with my wife Anna this afternoon, and she came with the same. And um, I asked her to marry her in Badi Rum, which is the desert in southern Jordan. Um, we stayed at Aid, is his name, he is a real Bedouin. Uh, we stayed in the desert, uh, in this tent, uh, with his second wife, I think, or third. Uh, and um, his mother lived there too, and um, but he had built a small tent uh, apart, so we didn't have to stay in the same tent. Because he knew he was part of the plan that I would propose Anna. She said yes. And in the morning, they had made breakfast. And the tension was a bit like, if Anna said yes, and they had made this yogurt with a thick layer from the sheep I still but that back then I could still smell uh, I don't not at this time uh, anymore and um, I Anna looked at me and she said and you know when you know each other this is not gonna work very well and I, I think I took a, one spoon and I you know when it starts gagging <laughs> <laughs> You know, you have to breathe deeply, and I took another one, and then I, I said, ah, shukran, I said, thank you, it was very nice, and then I just, I left it, and it was okay <laughs> by then, but, um, and I think that's the way to do it, like, maybe you just sip something and don't even swallow, um, but um, uh, it went well, okay, <laughs> it was horrific, it was not <laughs> sheep balls, but it was, 
I, I think some kind of sheet. Yo, yo, I, I don't know. It was it was horrendous. And for but, a little um, bit of uh, context here, you live in Sweden, where you eat fermented shark and. <laughs> no fermented uh, herring, actually. Herring, shark is sorry. Nice. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that is actually. Um, yeah, not having a smell, you, you have the same. It's it's quite okay to eat. The people who can smell, they really dislike it, and they kind of start vomiting when you you're not allowed to open the can inside the apartment. That much stuff it smells. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, yeah, but food. Um, yeah, I think um, it's an important part of, of traveling and um, um, yeah, on our tours as well. So. Yeah. No, and sometimes, you know, food is amazing in other countries and sometimes it's not. I think the Nepal trip for me was the first time I traveled overseas and the food was a little bit blander and less interesting than I kind of uh, was expecting. And so on that same subject of food, obviously you've spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and some time in South America and things and, and across the Middle East, I'm sure, Morocco. There's definitely some pitfalls to to kind of avoid and things that are good to eat and things that are not good to eat. So when it when it comes to traveling in places that are not home, not Western countries, what's your kind of advice for things you should do and things you shouldn't do? Yeah, um, bring good medicines when you have to shit. So <laughs> one day you will get it because uh, even you could say I'm a seasoned traveler. Uh, I have had my share of um, travelers' diarrhea and even food. Um, I, I like to say, but what I is, um, uh, be careful with like sleep in the beginning because when you start your tour and you have uh, start riding motorbikes and gear and having travelers' diarrhea is not a pleasant combination. Um, often, especially. Oh, in Scandinavia, where water is so pure and the food is so clean uh, and the air as well, you come to a country where the your stomach is just not used to it, like with all the floras and stuff. So you have to get used to that. Um, I think nowadays, uh, with the washing hands, with all the corona, it will be much easier. It's an easy one, but people just often they don't um, wash their hands enough, so they bring it in via the hands. The other thing is... Um, the camelback, often uh, people bring one, but they don't take care of it in a, in a way, uh, and then the hosts get like contaminated, they get sick by that. Um, normally for me, it's like when it's fried, it's safe. When you peel it, it's safe. Um, in Morocco, you gave the example, the tagine, it's this clay pot, and it's very well steamed, it's um, well cooked through, fully safe, no, no risk on that one at all um so there's a lot of options actually that you can do um be careful with chicken because that uh, can go off quickly then water uh, of course bottled water uh, some people um uh, don't want that then there are these um, of course you can buy pills but nowadays there are really good water bottles with the uv filter that goes on um uh, yeah, on UV and daylight, and they clean uh, water in a couple of hours, which is amazing. So you don't even need chemicals for that. 
to purify it. Um, but I would say, don't be too scary either, because um, yeah, when it's um, you, you, you often you cannot look into the kitchen, but um, like in Vietnam, the food, the food is so um, fresh, and they use so fresh ingredients. Um, never had any problems and eat anything. I mean, literally anything. Um, so I would say um, don't don't get too scared and stay to a bag of chips with Coca-Cola or something. That is um, really something I would not recommend. Coca-Cola is actually a good one. When you get stomach sick, white rice and Coca-Cola is a good medicine. When you, when you have kids. Yeah, it'll make you feel a lot yeah. better. No, but truly, it's a good medicine. When you, t you take the, the bubbles out with a bit of sugar, it's good. Sounds it's a good one. Sounds like a great night. So that trip you yeah. did in Nepal was your, I believe, your second time there. Like uh, you did one trip before to wrecking the route. When you did that first trip, it would have been shortly after that road opened to the public. So before 2015, there was no road. Before 92, there was no people allowed. If you didn't live there, you couldn't go there. Then you could go there, but you had to walk in. So really, there wasn't a lot of Western coverage. I believe I saw a bicycle film in 2010-ish called uh, Where the Trail Ends. They walked there carrying their bicycles with some Sherpas and could hike there. But otherwise, if you weren't into a committed hike, you weren't going. So prior to, uh, so how did you come up with that place as a destination to, to go and run a travel trip? And how do you find other interesting places to travel? How do you come up with ideas for that? Um, Nepal was uh, at the Himalayas, I must say, were, were on my list already too, because they're amazing, the mountains over there. Um, and then I uh, met a guy, a Swede, who did projects over there and had been traveling on a bike. And he said, uh, but he had not been, he said, I've seen it on a map and I heard some stories, but it's difficult to get in. You need a permit and it's, the road is just finished, it's rather rough. But it's, um, and he was following me and the company and the tours, and he said, this this is something for you. And um, so I did some research, um, there were some YouTube videos of indeed hikers and some mountain bikers who went up there. And um, I contacted uh, a good friend of mine, um, Santos, he's um, Nepalese military, I met him in, the, in Syria, and um, asked a bit more about it. And um, found out how it works with the pyramids and stuff like that. And he said, um, um, Chris, just go there, bring some people. If it goes wrong, I know the battalion commander and we fix it. And um, um, that basically gave me the push, like, oh, we, we go for it. And what I did, uh, we just spent a month, not only in Mustang, but the whole of Nepal, we drove a lot. We saw a lot, and in the end, when I came back, I made the tour kind of thing. I designed it, and um, so the reconnaissance for me is um, for me essential to feel um, to feel the country. I would say, like um, yes, there's a jungle and Sidwan, but you can ride elephant, and we did it on the reconnaissance actually, just to experience. But I all left it out, this touristic stuff, and focused only on, on Mustang for that. I think that area is 
it's special. You go 200 years back in time, and it's mainly a Buddhistic religion, and um, you know, to to get really the highlights to build the tour uh, once back to to pick up with the cherries on the pies. Right. Very cool. So, where obviously that trip came together through like a bit of information that you then ran with. How how did you come up with the other places you run trips? Like, uh, for example, you run one in Wales with off-road skills. You run one in Vietnam, and where when it comes to those trips, how do you, how do you pick out those places? Are you always just kind of looking it up on Google and trying to find the coolest bits, or are you working with local people to find that, asking questions on forums, or yeah, um, of course. Yeah, I, I, I basically I follow a lot of old landers as well because they come often to interesting, interesting places as well. Um, so I keep an eye on them uh, if they come to cool places. Um, that's one. Um, re reading, just um, I, I'm, I'm gonna say it's the travel books uh, or yeah, travel books. Um, you get inspired by some book. I think like, oh, that may be a really nice location or destination. And um, yeah, and then, then the step is, of course, how to get in contact. Uh, it's like, um, I don't know, um, to get local contact uh, mostly is um, by either rental companies or touring agents or uh, Possibly people you know, or somebody you get in contact via Facebook. That's, if you have questions and you are curious, you ask. People always want to tell about their country, so they come up with a lot of local good advice, and that's the best you can get. Because um, me coming from uh, Europe, going to to a country, um, I would never get the knowledge of somebody who's living there for all of his life, and. Um, so that's one of the best actually um, to get on beforehand. Also during when you travel, it's like local advice. And nowadays it's so much easier. If I compare to 15 years ago when I traveled the Middle East, um, nowadays with all the social media, you can easily in contact with people. And it's good. And not only will other people go, but also uh, oh, the locals, they know the gems. And that is like, that's, that's the ones that I am looking for. Mm. Special. It makes it special. Like, uh, I don't know. Did we go to the with the guy? Oh, we went to the cave and to the yeah to the yeah. Did we also go in Nepal? Did we also go to the Bed the Bedouins or not? Was no. The, uh, no. No. Okay. You see, it's also evolving. Like you target people and then they say, oh, there's a sky burial place uh, place over here and. Uh, one of the things how they bury people in Buddhism is they chop them up in pieces and give them to the vultures. So it's called sky burial place. And that's something I found out later. So during, the more often you come to a place, the more you talk with people, the more you get to know. Mm. Um, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's... Uh, so obviously a lot of the traveling you do now is, is kind of in a group scenario. Now when it comes to traveling advice that's given out, serial travelers, especially people that travel on their own, is that traveling in a group will change your travel experience a lot. In theory, when you travel alone, you're more likely to engage with local people. 
Now, as someone that's done a lot of both from when you kind of travel to the Middle East or from when you spend a bit of time on your own in Iceland to the months you spent traveling with Anna or, I don't know, the hundreds of customer tours you've led, how, how do they differ between riding on your own and riding in groups? And how do you encourage people to embrace the experience best in each environment? Mm. Yeah. Um... Yeah, because as you say, like in theory, you sh when you're traveling alone, you're more likely to engage. Um, not always, because it's a choice, I would say, uh, engaging or not. Um, when I was in Iceland, I was there for six months on my own. That, there's not so many people, so there's not so much that the local sheep you can engage with. Um, no, of course, but when you are traveling alone, you, you kind of uh, often need more help and need to contact them. Um, more local people. How how do I do that with um, with groups? Because I that's really I'm very aware that with a group of riders and we normally this tours when we do disadvantages it smacks like ten people, um, and it's not that they always know each other. So you put ten people that are no, unknown to each other in a new situation in a new country and let them ride it. Or can be quite difficult and tough sometimes. Um, for me, it's um, that is like something like military. You call it leading by example. Like I think I intentionally sometimes show that um, the world we're traveling through, the, the country, it's not dangerous, and the people living there is not dangerous. And it can be very simple, like stopping at a small kiosk, and it's not planned uh, on beforehand to buy a Coke for everybody. Uh, and when you stop, you're interesting because you're a group of bikers, people show up, and then it's just making small talks. Um, uh, then the fun starts, I would say. And when people see that, they kind of open up. If I would keep the group very close and like sheltered and off from local population, this would not happen. So kind of, I kind of take them, I push them into this situation. Um, and people see, they notice that it works and it's great fun. So, um, yeah, that's, that's uh, as I said, I do it uh, intentionally. Uh, another uh, example is like, oh, this was also a mistake. Um, some two years later, I've been there now six times, and that's a school on the way in. And I didn't know, I heard it from another person and then I thought like Let, let's have a look so I went up talked with the teacher and then they said oh we can give you a, a tour through the school and then of course why not and you know with children and schools it's great fun we had a good laugh and uh, it's very spontaneous and um, I make time for it and it was really appreciated by everybody uh, and, and it was not me leading them there was suddenly people interact themselves students and with the teachers so it naturally really evolved and people do really appreciate that afterwards. Those are the things they remember. Um, not that waterfall, of course, they want to see the pixie, but it's those encounters with people that, that, that makes the memories of itself. So that's nice. Yeah, yeah very much. I think I totally, I totally agree that those, those experiences, like you say, that happen because of or with people are always the ones that I think are the most fulfilling and the most kind of enjoyable yes. in the travel after the Autumn Trail or whatever. They're always the ones that stick with me. 
Mm. So when it comes to when it comes to planning a new trip, for you, what what is most important? What are the details you absolutely need to know before you go somewhere? And what are the details that for you just don't matter that much? Are you, yeah. What are, what are your priorities? Um, personally, my priorities are always safety. The, 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 the first thing, like planning a new trip is always the starting date. Everybody it goes not only for me when I plan a trip, that was when I did this trip with Anna for six months. Uh, people are dreaming for traveling the world and those kind of starts with a date. date and it sounds very simple, but it's the hardest thing to do because if you speak it out, put a date and say, that date I'm going to start my trip to whatever, for two months. Um, Start with that. Um, so I, I have a rough time frame always. And for me, the most important, now it that's the most, is safety, I would say. And of course, they need to have fun. But uh, as long as it's safe, like uh, you can take them within limits out of the comfort zone and like take calculated risk, I would say. So I always try to um, make a rough time frame and a rough route. That, not plan too much into details. Uh, that's for the first time we're talking about. Uh, those are always the most adventurous to us as well on trips because a lot of things don't go as planned. And uh, no, with the shit hits the fan, you know, you have to improvise. So then, um, then the part of making memories starts. I would say the adventure begins. So, um, <clears throat> so you need to build in time. Uh, for those kind of events, I think if you plan it all too tight, some people are because it's all where we started this uh, talk with like uh, it's the unknown and they're afraid of being the unknown, so they try to <coughs> sorry plan everything in detail. Uh, they prep the bike fully in detail, and then the first flat tire or the first breakdown or the and the whole plan goes uh, goes off and. Uh, and, that, and then it starts becoming fun, of course. But if you keep space in your planning to do so, then you have time for uh, for this kind of improvisations, which uh, which could be good fun as long as nobody gets hurt. That's for me is the most important. To so having a backup, like thinking in what ifs, what if somebody gets hurt? Where's the hospital? Uh, what if um, I need to call for um, like a mechanic or like for spare parts, like those kind of things. Um, it's more thinking in what ifs and not too much into details. It's all like thinking in scenarios and not too much in like what um, possibly uh, what we uh, will happen or not. Yeah, yeah. that's that's mostly how we how I approach it. Yes, I'm not talking about a tour that is fully developed and settled and have been done 10 times because and even those things can happen and change we change all the time and make it better according to us but um in the very beginning it's very rough open and uh those are the best i think at least i think so when you when you did that trip with anna you traveled for six months from through the americas north and south i believe North, Central, and South, yes. Central, we started in Canada, we went all the way to... Uh, actually, we didn't go all the way to Ushaya. I'm not a guy that needs to tick boxes. 
um, we met a lot of people uh, and we met a lot of former colleagues actually. Uh, we ran out of time and I has a, had a job, um, a real job I would say, and uh, she had to go back. So we never made it all the way down, uh, which is fine. I'm cool with that. But that was for six months, yeah, on two bikes. So when you when you uh, did that trip, how much of your route did you decide beforehand, or were you kind of just uh, a little bit freehand with it? Where you said, no, maybe we'll go left, maybe we'll go right, and and what other kind of things did you try to build into that? Because obviously there's a big difference between planning a trip in one country for two weeks where you're going somewhere extreme and riding a really long way over a really long period of time. So how did you approach that differently? Yeah, um, I, I tried to, as I said before, I, I tried to keep it open as much as possible. The, um, I put it in blocks, I'd say, like three weeks in the, Ameri in the States, like three weeks in Mexico. And the only hard date we had on that trip was because we need to pass Daring Gap between Panama and Colombia. And we decided to do it by the Star Rata, which is a boat, which is an amazing experience. But you need to be at a certain date or a certain time on the pier, and then you get picked up in the water for five days. Um, and before that, it was uh, in the end we had to rush it, and that was, um, I would say, um, I, I could have planned, but that, no, it's not. No, you could not have planned it. But uh, as I said, I had a feeling we had to rush it. I would have spent more time in Central America, which we did, uh, but it, which is a good reason to go back. Um, so basically, we didn't plan so much of the route. I had, hi had highlights of things that I wanted to see. Uh, we didn't see them all. Uh, we got advice from people we met on the way, which was much better where we looked at. So we we kind of freebied all the way down, like um, uh, and kept it very flexible. Um, Anna, my wife, is much more sensible than I because if I it was up to me, we drove seven days a week. No, not anymore. Back then, it was more like that. And she said, Chris, I want at least one day not riding on the bikes. I said, okay, that's the deal. It turned out in the end that we, like average of three days, we didn't ride. Um, but we met so much, many people, and we did so many other things like hiking, canoeing, amazing. And that made the trip so much better. So it was not only about the riding. So, uh, some people do that. They just want to go, go, go. It's fine. It's their way of doing it. But I think. Um, having this time and really experience um, the country how it is and getting in contact with people was so much, so much better. They made the trip so much better. Absolutely. So keep it open. Don't don't plan too tight. Absolutely not. Actually. No. I, I suppose the interesting thing about that is that that approach of kind of taking a bit more time off is is really counter in a, to how most short trips are conducted, right? Like when we've done a trip together with customers or you've only got a small amount of time, you try to ride as much as possible. But I always find, like you said, you get worn out. You, know, you do six days riding, even if you're not physically tired or mentally, there's kind of a part of that wants to sit still. And um, so the next question I've got is, you, we talked about this before this podcast a little bit actually, was about having one really good local contact, especially if you're going somewhere new and somewhere a little bit more remote. Like you said, uh, in Nepal, you have the phone number for the battalion commander, which is obviously a little bit through some previous contacts you have in the military. But 
when you go somewhere, say like your trip in Vietnam, how do you find that one person who's a good contact? Do you always go with like a person from the rental place or are you looking for something specifically? And is it something you always use or are there times where you're like, no, you don't need a contact, you'll be fine. And times where you're like, no, it's really good to know something. Um, I think I always use it because I think when, um, not, not, not so much when I travel on my own, I would say, um, but preparing for tours, um, but, oh, but yes, even no, but a big trip even as well. Um, I had contact, um, of course, colleagues that I had or friends that I knew, uh, but even, um, dealerships. Um, I, we, at that time, we, uh, I was riding a BMW on that as well, um, or touring agents, um, and they were very open and they responded and like, and then you have a first entrance. So, and if something happens, um, they they speak the local language because Vietnamese is from, um, but they also know the local cultures and they know how to deal with police and like with. Uh, healthcare and those kind of things, which is as long as as things are going well, then everybody's happy, shining people. But as it goes wrong, then you need to act. And when you don't speak the language, when there's panic, when there's people hurt or whatever, um, I think those kind of backups are really good. Um, and as I said before, nowadays it's so much easier. I, I saw, um, of course, I follow uh, the, the TAP Trans European Trail, which is an amazing project. Um, uh, I keep an eye on that. I think it's interesting. And last summer I saw um, it's a big social community on, on Facebook and um, Guy who pressed quite hard on a single track um, and asked for help. And if you see, how much people responded like um, on that. It is amazing already. So nowadays, now I'm talking in Europe, but those kind of things work really well. Um, so you're not totally alone out there on your own. When going to really off remote, like Mustang the first time, was really off, satellite phone, those kind of, um, you need a bit more of a backup. Um, that Italian commander, it was the goal because the car broke down, not one time, many times, but then the exit was off. Um, we needed to go up, so I needed another car, so I had a tea with him and got a replacement, and in the end, it got all fixed. So I do believe that um, having somebody to contact in that country where you travel is a really good asset. And if it's via Facebook friend or, as I said, social media or for formal work or like just a company that it doesn't matter. Um, when in need of help, people will help. Uh, it might cost something because yes, trucking your bike to a garage to uh, that costs money. Uh, but that's how it works. Uh, not everything is for free. Um, but at least you get on. That's what it's about. That's what I mean. Like you create a safety net, and I think that's. Um, not always people do that. They they start thinking when it goes wrong, then they think like, oh, what shall we do now? And, uh, which is an interesting way of doing it as well, which can be cool. But if people get really hurt, like, yeah, you might get serious. Stuff. 
and of course on the tour they just they, they pay for it but it's going to be erased so it's my kind of job to fix it but I would say um, always make sure that you know somebody um, so now everybody will call me when they go to Sweden <laughs> <laughs> no worries yeah, maybe we... It's not the first time I help people around. That's that's something that you do, I think, like as uh, I've been overlanding as well. Like if you need help, you yeah, help out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, before um, we did this podcast, I went on a little bit of a deep dive into your social media and went back nearly 10 years and found a photo of you and Anand camping in the snow on a ski holiday. Now, for the people watching, I did have it prepared and I changed my view this but when it comes to camping on a trip or in a remote place, what, what items for you are essential and what should most people just be leaving at home? I mean, the things they don't need to carry. Yeah, uh, that's, um, I, I, find, I find it a hard question, to be honest, um, because um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm absolutely a minimalist and... Um, I don't need much. So some people just, they need more comfort and they need more things to bring. And the more you bring, the, the heavier it gets and the tougher it gets. Now, I would say I invested quite an amount in, in, in a good sleeping bag, which, especially in Scandinavia, can be cold, of course, during the seasons, a good mattress. And um, I have this Cortex dry bag, which I could basically curl in and sleep wherever I want. Um, or a tarp. Um, that's for me, that's the three, the basic essential. And inside that, like a stove, um, where you can cook, and it's a multi fuel stove. So don't think like uh, you have this gas bottle ones that you can buy them in every country. You cannot. Um, you have a stove with this multi fuel, you can put even your gasoline, which you have with you in the pipe, and you can use it uh, always. Um, I think a lot of people bring a lot of clothes always. And I always say, like, also the same, even when going on tour, like, we're not going disco dancing, you don't need to wear your tuxedo. Um, keep it simple, like, wear merinos. Uh, doesn't stink, you can easily wash it and dries quickly. Um, you can use it during the day and in the evening. Um, so I would say, when camping, keep it to you, just the essentials. And um, yeah, some people bring a table, some people bring a, uh, a chair just for comfort. Um, oh, I remember like on our big trip, we didn't even bring chairs. You had these things that you put on your sleeping mattress to make a chair out of that. So skip, we skip bringing a chair for that reason. So, but that's just how I kind of travel, how I like to camp. But that's really simple. Nowadays it's very, um, but they need trees. In Iceland would work because there are no It's these uh, hammocks, which is, they're amazing. I have one myself, it's called, uh, I don't know the brand, hammock or whatever. Uh, they have a tarp over them and a mosquito net, and you kind of, they sleep amazingly. You, you just strap, strap it between two, two trees, and they're really small, so they're easy to bring on a bike as well. And here in Scandinavia, it's a lot of trees, so really easy way of traveling and we have a lot of wind protective shields with the pre-build even have firewood so that's easy for us we don't need to bring a tent 
Nice. 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 I like uh, I like the sound of a mosquito net in Scandinavia. It's the home of the mosquito. So, yes. <laughs> so one of the things I think uh, running an adventure bike channel, bikes and bike choice is the single most common topic of discussion. Every bike re review we do, every time we ask a question, somebody is saying you're on the wrong bike. Somebody is telling us that the review we've done is garbage because their bike is the greatest bike in the world. And so from arguing over bike size and worrying about details of bikes and things they carry all the time, you've kind of been lucky enough to travel on pretty much, I think, every type of bike. You know, in Vietnam and Nepal, you buy a CRF250L or the older CRF Tornado 250, all the way up to riding a 1200GS through the Americas, riding onto the Middle East. And then you have a 701, you have an Africa Twin, you have recently just bought a 1080 So you know about all of these different types of bikes. How much does the bike matter to the trip and to your experience? And kind of what's your advice to people if they're going to go on their own trip? Um, if you want to make longer trips, um, make, make a test run, fully packed, because um, and depends on what you're gonna do. If you make a full tarmac, no, not not really, uh, no off-roading or whatever. Yes, sir. It doesn't make that such of a difference. Uh, the the twelve hundred, the twelve fifty. You know, this it's an amazing bike. I think it's a really good all-rounder. I did the six months on it, never let me down, and I had amazing time. Not always, because I can show you movies in mud, and it's really dirty and Anna shouted at me that she wanted to divorce me and she should have never done <laughs> this truly happened actually um we still met but anyway um coming to like um depending what you want to do um it's uh, in the end it's the, the weight i would say like uh, can you can you handle the bike um but if it makes you happy if you're happy with it you, you should stick to that bike. Uh, this is famous Dutch guy who rode the world like on an R1, I think, uh, five times. He's like two meters tall. I met him once and it was like, whoa, how did he's like folded on his He loves this bike and that's the bike he wants to do it with. That's fine. Um, so it's a really personal thing. But I think what you should really do is make a, like a try run, like a, go out for a week or even longer and see how it works in different terrains and with all your gear on, with all the camping gear on. Uh, and let's see if you still enjoy it because in the end, it could be the difference between having fun all the time or having to survive all the time, uh, that feeling. And putting yourself in an unknown situation brings already stress and fear enough. If you put the bike on top of that, if you're not able to really handle it, or like, then um, that, that, that's only more stress, I would say. You got already enough. Um, so um, for that reason, I have different bikes. And um, like last Sunday, I was in the forest here, and uh, that I picked my 701 to have fun. Um, we were planning to make a long trip this summer. Four other friends on T700s, Yamaha, in one car. And we 
chose that bike because of really, oh, it's re- reliable, it's lighter, and it's just a bit more comfort. Um, so it's a hard question, I think, because there's a lot of emotions involved, and emotions are not rational, so you can rationalize it. So that makes it difficult, I think. Um, there's not one best bike. The bike you do it on, that's the bike you should. And if you you should enjoy it, that's that's my main point. If you're not enjoying it, if you have a good example, maybe um, on the way down we met in um, Bolivia, I think, or Peru. We met, we met a German couple, and they were they started on two bikes, but she crashed in the first week already. So there were two up, not eight hundred. They had been struggling through the sand in Bolivia, I think. And the energy they sent out was so negative. Like he was just only I'm not shouting like in German, like, but he was uh, not that he was an ass, but just uh, the whole energy. And we were like high spirits, and we were happy, and like, and he's like, what is this? And they were just on the wrong bike. They they, they should both should have a light bike. They were probably not capable of handling the sand and stuff like that. Um, probably when they have, had, would have done it on a lighter bike, they would have an awesome experience. And now it turned into kind of a nightmare, and they had to oh, get it out uh, when, when we talked. Um, so it does affect you, I think. Um, and of course, afterwards, you can say on a couple of beers, like, whoa, we did this. Uh, oh. If you do it for three months, then it becomes a, a different story, of course. Mm. Oh. Well, I think yeah. in that situation, it can completely ruin the experience. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So yeah. along, along the same lines, when it comes to safety equipment, obviously, like a lot of the trips you run, you go into quite remote places. And the middle of Iceland is a good example. It's very remote for a long time. You look around and you don't see anything. So when it comes to safety equipment, I think you can definitely turn yourself into a walking satellite with the fanciest Garmin thing in the world that sends texts and gives you weather updates. Or you can be dramatically unprepared and have no way to contact people once you're out of phone signal. So what do you carry in regards to safety equipment? And what equipment can be relied upon and what can't? Like what is consistently always working for you? Does that change? There's three questions there. Does that change depending on whether you're traveling alone or traveling with a group? Uh, did, did that change when I was traveling alone, you say, or with groups? Yeah. So, yeah, first one is, is what do you carry in terms of safety equipment? Yeah, yeah. Um, personally, of course, now I always, my phone, but um, I have, um, it's attached to my camelback, uh, Garmin uh, InReach. Um, that's for like a spot. This is kind of it's not a brand. Um, the same purpose. It goes via satellite, and you can nowadays not only push the button to for SOS services, but you can even chat via Bluetooth connection with your phone if somebody has another one, or with the people back home. That one I carry, and I would say I have it even now on a Sunday ride here on in Sweden with me because there's places in the forest there where you don't have phone reception. People nowadays they tend to rely a lot on their phone. Um, it, I think the phone, of course, it's amazing nowadays with navigation uh, as well. Um, you can debate like having it on your bike or not, because when you crash and your bike is lying there and you're lying over there, it's a different story, of course. I have it always on me, the phone, but that's a personal thing. Um, 
Then another thing with mobile phone is because a mobile phone is fine when you have um, reception. Um, when going to a foreign country, bring another one, a second one, or you have a dual SIM because often with roaming and stuff like that, uh, even in Mustang, there's like three different operators, so I'm switching SIM cards all the way, but it's always local. Uh, where on my Swedish card, there's no no contract, so there's no reception. So buy a local SIM card, I would say. That's my piece of advice, and which I do myself as well. Uh, even going to Morocco and Iceland, uh, those countries. Um, you say Iceland remote, yes, um, but 95% of Iceland actually has 3G or 4G, which is really good. Um, and I noticed that um, because the first time I was there, I was riding with three Polish guys, and they were good, but one guy on a cross challenge, I think he, he crashed and broke his leg, and he called 112. And 20 minutes later, the helicopter came and they picked him up. Um, so in Iceland, that's, that's um, and like in the whole of Europe, I would say that's pretty, pretty much well arranged. Um, countries like Morocco and Nepal, Vietnam, it's of course a different ballgame. Where um, I do bring sometimes, uh, I, I, I do bring to Nepal, I bring a, a um, satellite from. Um, not anymore to Morocco because that, and it's developing also so quickly nowadays. So, yes, it did change. Where in the beginning you have satellite phones, all these emergency beacons uh, it's tending to go more to the phone. But that's when you go really remote, I don't rely on that one. Um, the first, but it's also a, a mental state of. Yeah, just a mental state, I would say. The the first spot I bought, because I this these questions made me think, of course, like back to all the things and why and how. Uh, because again, on this long trip with Anna and me, basically you had the local yeah. same and that's it. And uh, we were through the Americas and um, on the border between US and Mexico, on no one land, her bike broke down. The van broke down, so it overheated. So we had to go back to the States. Uh, we got the bike fixed there, but we had a lot of time to do research and she was back then also working for the uh, military intelligence service when we started marking the map. And at the end, the map was all marked and said, like, we cannot go anywhere. So and people said, like, are you going to Mexico? Do you want to get killed and kidnapped? So then, then the fear took over. Like, and I started Googling like safety beacons and like, and then I came to the spot that is I'm not talking like uh, 2010, so it's like 10 years ago. Uh, that was the first time I bought it, and it is, it is an, it is a good thing I would say because um, it works always, uh, and you can even um, because there's an SOS button when you need really the, the services that you need for an accident or whatever. But on the other hand, if you're traveling solo or you have a family back home or your partner, whatever, there's a lot of things you can program nowadays. You can push that OK button in the evening when you have been riding and you arrive in your tent in a place nowhere and just push OK. person back home gets a signal and a coordinate and they know, OK, you're good. It's a, it's a peace of mind, not only for yourself, but also back home. So why not? It's there, use it. Um, and nowadays you can even rent them, um, which is good. If you go on a trip for three weeks, you rent a English for, I don't know, but it's possible. Yeah, I believe in those things. 
Very interesting. So when you're away from home for a while, I think for me, having a few comfortable items to make life easier, like it's the difference between feeling like things, yeah, just always feeling comfortable enough, even when you're in really uncomfortable places, and not feeling that way. So for you, what are the essentially... Uh, what are the essential things you recommend to people to keep them sane and comfortable? And what are the things you carry? You said you're a minimalist, so you don't really carry a lot in general. But what are those those kind of little things? Is it earplugs? Is it like I don't know, a certain toothbrush or yeah? Yeah. Yeah, you see me smiling just now because yes, I am a minimalist, but I'm also on tours nowadays. I I don't tend to bring a lot. I think I have uh, the least with me. But I um <coughs> sorry. I do bring my electrical toothbrush nowadays and it's amazing because um uh I wrote down and I spoke down about it. This is something I think you learn in the military when you brush your teeth and you sometimes you take a shave, you know, after a week in the rough and you, it's a really morale booster, you feel clean again, you feel like energized. So that is something and I noticed that during my tours like um, people, some, when they get tired, uh, and it's uh, so much to take in, like um, it's very inten intensive. Like they tend not always to take care of themselves so well. So sometimes you have to send people to the shower, not because I don't care. I don't care to smell because I don't smell, but just for themselves to feel better. Um, for me, I think. Um, of course, when I go on a camping trip, I don't bring electrical toothbrushes, products, but um, on tours, I do like, for me, music is always something I think, uh, but that's really personal. I think you should bring something personal. If you're like a reader, bring a good book or like a Kindle or whatever. Uh, if you're into movies, bring an iPad. It's not, it's okay to bring some luxury in your life. Uh, if it's a bad day, you stay in your tent, training, just read all day or listen all day to music. Um, but um, as I said, like at least ensure that you'll be able to brush your teeth and shave yourself because those are morale cases. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a nice pair of comfy pants. Like, no. So, sometimes you just in the evening you even sit in your you know, bike gear. I not in your trousers. I put on like these jackets. So, but to have a nice, comfortable pair of trousers, I feel that's nice. Instead of just your braces on your knees, always you know your, your boots on, it's always chumpy and it's nice to have something comfy. But it's uh, very personal. And uh, the thing is not to 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 be ashamed for it, it's like uh, something you feel comfortable with. And that's really different for person. What is yours, uh, Leo? I think uh, earplugs, uh, one pair of like super comfy socks to wear in the evening, like fluffy socks. Mm -hmm. And maybe like a good pillow, like you know, you get like a nice travel pillow. It's a, it's not a blow up one, you know. I don't I don't need a pillow to sleep, but for me, it's like a, just a little bit stuffs in a pocket. But otherwise, yeah. yeah, those things. The earplugs as well, especially if you're, you know, you're traveling and you're staying with other people. If you have to stay in a hostel or something, there is yeah. nothing yeah. worse than sharing a room with someone that snores for hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I am okay. I'm not so bothered by snoring of other people. Um, uh, but the pillow is nice, indeed. Uh, and nowadays, you have these inflatable ones 
which is really small to bring, so it's uh, it's a nice one. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, the last the last question I, I've got is um is about riding kit. Now I know you're sponsored by Climb, and um, so obviously it's probably a Climb version of that kit. But regardless of what you're doing or where you're going, what is the one piece of riding kit that always goes in your gear bag after the obvious ones? You know, you have your helmet, your boots, your jacket, trousers. Is there something else in there that you're like that always goes in because it's just better than everything else? Yeah, I, I had to think about this because, um, and it's actually not, I wrote a couple of things down, um, and it's all not climb actually. <laughs> and uh, the, for me, the must have for kit is, and I think uh, it's my um, dehydration backup. Um, a, of course, you can carry stuff in it, but it's the water, the fluid supplies. Um, I think there's an amazing um, part of the kit because people underestimate um, getting dehydrated. Um, it's like a tiger, it sneaks up from behind and then, and it's not only with heat, it's even cold. Uh, if you're active, like trail riding or off-road riding, you spend a lot of energy. And um, so for me, that's something I would recommend a lot of people. And some people argue, oh, but I don't like something on my back. Nowadays, they have like a hip bag even, or even in a tank bag with a hose up so you can sip some small, because I don't believe in like having lunch and putting one and a half liter inside of your body, because you will pee it out mostly uh, or later. I believe in staying hydrated by drinking regularly. Uh, another piece of good kit is like a buff, I think uh, preferably also Merino. Um, you can use it a lot, of course, for your, your hair. It's not so nice anymore. You can put it on your hair and nobody sees it. It's like a hat. It's warm. and it's for the, But even when you drown your bike, um, we did it in um, in Wales when we did the Strata Florida, I think it's called. The deep yeah, water. Yeah. Strata Florida. Famous. Yeah, exactly. Good place to Very, drown a bike. Really exciting, with, especially with 15 big bikes to do it. Uh, in a group, um, one bike only got drowned, and um, of course, paper air filter. Uh, kit managed to dry it. it was quite, uh, you can use your uh, buff to for emergency as an air filter, and it works well. Um, uh, I think that's um, for kit. I would say personally, and the, the the third thing I wrote down, and I liked them, and I changed a lot of fixed a lot of punches. Is the Motion Pro um, uh, on one side? I don't know how you call it. It's like the dead leaves. You take the, the tire levers, and one side is a wrench, the other side is a. Yeah. They, yeah, I think they're lightweight and they're just an amazing piece of kit, I think. They're the um, they're aluminium ones, yeah. It's really set. light, yeah. You're right, and you can, um, for your. Oh, you can take basically your wheels out without oh, with those as well. Um, we don't need much other equipment for that, like, like those. And they don't pinch the, the, in the tubes, and they're amazing. I like them. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, nice. Well, thank you very much. It's some, uh, some brilliant answers there. And um, just to, to finish up, I've run out of questions um, to put your brain to. Um, just to finish up, uh, for the people that are listening, yeah, tell people where they can find you and kind of some of the tricks that you run. 
Yeah, uh, of course, people can find me on, on, the, on the web, of course. Um, it's uh, explore360.nu, uh, a website, very simple. Like you can find the trips as a calendar. Um, we basically, I am, we were, I thought this would be the most successful year until <laughs> the, the corona started up. Uh, we are pretty much, and still, the tours for the second half, they are still, we were fully booked this year. Um, um, so I'm not worried about filling up this year. Uh, I'm worried about if it's going to happen or not. And I have my doubts, to be honest. Um, we moved, uh, actually, we might meet in Wales in September. I spoke with your dad. We have an alternative date, so maybe we'll see each other at least. Um, but we, I'm focusing on next year. And uh, we have some really some nice locations, like a new... Uh, and I'll get a new tour in Uganda. I found out that you can camp inside a national park um, and you can go in with your motorbike into a national park. There's not many countries in Africa where you can do that. Like uh, I've been in Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa. And of course, you have these wild parks, uh, but you're not allowed to go in with your bike. Um, but in Uganda, you can. And you get a guy with a gun, the AK, and they, they guard you during the night. And uh, so that's something uh, which is in the plan for 2021. Um, Sri Lanka is high on my list. Um, I was planning to go already last year. Then the attacks came this year. Um, as I said, I have my doubts, otherwise in December. And um, the last thing is, of course, you've been to Iceland. Next year will be the 10 years anniversary. And I'm uh, beside the normal one, I'm thinking of making a special one, a bit more for a higher level writing, I'd say. A bit shorter, but more intensive. So those are the ideas for next year. And uh, besides the tours to Morocco, Vietnam, and Nepal, which we regularly do as well. So your, uh, your, your website is explore360.nu. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah. yeah. So for those that are fresh to the podcast um, and have come from Chris's email, this is something that we do every single week, uh, normally on a Thursday, but today it's on a Tuesday. Um, and our next episode will be Thursday in one week's time with another really interesting guest, a guy called Isaac Johnston. Um, and he is a professional adventurer, basically. He's an Instagrammer, by trade photographer, who makes adventure films and he lives his entire life outdoors. And we're going to be talking to him about this, the process of becoming a more adventurous person and how to kind of embrace living in a much more outdoor way. So yeah, thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thanks for your time, Chris. It's been, uh, it's been fascinating. And yeah, speak to you soon. Thank you.